1: To another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. The Buffalo Bills defeated the New York Jets very handily since the last time we talked. And it kind of felt like a sigh of relief game for a lot of Bills mafia. The defense played up to standard. The offense bounced back. A lot of hand-wringing that existed after the Jacksonville Jaguars game seems to have gone by the wayside at least until the Bills lose again. Or at least until their offense struggles again. Or at least until there's something else to freak out about. We've been through ups and downs already this season. The Buffalo Bills started on a downer. After two weeks, it was, what's wrong with the offense and Josh Allen. Then we had to go through the whole three games is a trend thing. Then the Jaguars loss happened right after the Titans loss happened. Ups and downs are part of it. But the Buffalo Bills are six and three after all of the ups and downs. Very few people thought they would go undefeated. Going undefeated is very difficult. Been through ups, been through downs. But now that we're in a good place, now that the Buffalo Bills have won the most recent game, that they played. Now I can kind of talk about something that I wanted to talk about before, but I was kind of worried it might come off a little heavy handed if I did it then. And that is some of the comments and notes that I got in the heat of emotion, in the heat of anger from Bill's mafia on social media in regards to holding the team accountable. I thought it was really interesting because I got some notices and some tweets. Well, I I sure hope you talk about this, Bruce. Got to hold them accountable. I sure hope the media asks tough questions in the press conference. Got to hold them accountable. And I think we need to talk a little bit about that. I want to talk a little bit about holding professional sports teams accountable. Because it's something that popped up. And something that historically has popped up, but I never really want to talk about it after a loss, even though that might be the most salient time to talk about it, because I don't think people are in a good emotional headspace to be able to receive the message. So I wanted to wait. I put notes down about it, and I wanted to wait until I thought maybe it would be as well-received as it could be, given the fact that it's sort of a sensitive topic. And that is, I'm going to start with the conclusion. And then I'm going to go all the way back around to the beginning. I'm going to Tarantino it. We're going to start with the ending, and then we're going to go back to the beginning. The conclusion is this. I, as a content creator, and people who are professional media, don't hold sports teams accountable. They don't. I'm not saying they should and they don't. I'm saying that's not their job and they can't. The people who are supposed to hold professional sports teams accountable, are you the consumer of the product. Think about it. Every other product that exists in a capital society is controlled by the consumer's willingness to consume it. That is ultimately how the consumer expresses their displeasure at a product. They stop consuming it. They stop buying it. But the wonderful, amazing, and maybe even sad part about sports fandom is that those rules don't really apply because if you treat your sports fandom like any rational consumer would of any other product, you get branded as a bad fan, a fair weather fan, a bandwagon fan, because we have brand loyalty to such a fanatical level that when you stop consuming a product, you are branded by the social culture that you are part of as being an outcast, as being a leper, as being the worst of all things, which is a bad fan. The consumer is supposed to hold the product accountable. The consumer, by not consuming. Nobody holds a team accountable by asking tough questions. The New York media is famous for asking tough questions. The Giants, the Jets, even though they're New Jersey, yes, I know. How has that worked out for the Jets? Well, good thing the media is holding them accountable. The media doesn't hold them accountable. That's not the media's job. The media's job is to ask questions, get answers, but let's assume that they don't get them or they give an answer you don't like. Who's in charge of making sure that the appropriate people are held accountable? You, you are, but you're not going to. You're not going to hold them accountable because the second somebody else does that, you call them a bad fan. Instead, you're going to write angry tweets and write angry social media posts and write angry articles and call into the radio station angry and send angry tweets, but you're not going to stop consuming the product. So you're just going to be mad. Dollars that are spent in anger spend exactly the same way as dollars that are spent in joy. It doesn't matter how you feel. All that matters is you consume and you will continue to consume because you don't have another option in your mind. And anyone else who decides to exercise their option gets branded as such as a traitor or a turncoat or not a real fan. So don't look to the content creators and don't look to the media to do something that you're not willing to do. And that's hold a team accountable when they're not doing well. Don't look to them to do your job because you're the one who consumes You're the one who spends the money on the team. So the media gets in a press conference. They ask a tough question. They ask a tough question to try to get an illuminating answer. What you decide to do with that illuminating answer is still up to you. Okay, so the media asked a tough question. Congratulations. They got an answer. You either did or did not like the answer. Okay, now what are you going to do about it? Nothing. You're going to do nothing about it. So I can get on here and I can rail against the evils or the shortcomings or the incompetence of whatever sports organization I happen to be following at this time. And it's not going to matter because you're still consuming the product. So don't look to the media and don't look to content creators to hold a team accountable. That's not what they do. That's not what we do. That's what you do. And your refusal to do it doesn't pass the blame or responsibility onto somebody else. Just accept the fact that you're going to continue to consume it regardless of how you feel about it. There are certain people out there who draw a line. They say, nope, I'm done. I've had enough. They do treat their sports fandom like they would any sort of other economic consumption. They say, nope, I'm done. They don't care if you brand them as a bad fan or a traitor or a turncoat. They say, I'm done. And they walk away. But those people never seem to happen in enough quantities to stop teams from making mountains and mountains and mountains of money every single year. So in the absence of of enough people who elect to stop consuming to even move the needle, what actually drives change? Mostly owner embarrassment. That's mostly what drives change. Owners like to win. They're usually alpha personalities, hyper-competitive. Usually that's what got them ahead in business. So it's owner embarrassment. Sometimes owner embarrassment can be brought on By public relations. I acknowledge that. Sometimes that stuff is connected to the media and the fan outrage. But ultimately, people continue to consume. So it always makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up just a little bit when someone tweets at a member of the Bills media or tweets at me and says, We're going to hold them accountable. We're going to hold them accountable. No, you hold them accountable. You're not going to. You're just going to be mad. And if you want to tweet angrily at me, that's fine. But don't pass your responsibility on to me. I'm not the one who's mad. See if there's any correlation between media markets that ask tough questions and winning teams. Because there's not. So I recognize that this opening rant is completely out of left field. But you can see now why I wanted to bring it up after a good win. And not a bad loss. Speaking of good win, we got stuff to talk about. Stick with me, we'll be right back. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent,
0: you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. With Kizik Cans Free Shoes, Motion sounds something like this.
1: Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. So I went off on a little bit of a rant before the commercial break. I make no apologies for this, but I think it's a very important topic to have a discussion about. But it was a fun game to watch on Sunday. I enjoyed watching it. And I think one of the things that was interesting for me is we all were wondering coming in to the game how the offense was going to look different. Are they going to do anything? Is the offensive tempo going to be different? Are the formations going to be different? Is the personnel going to be different? And I said on Twitter that if I could have used one word to describe the Buffalo Bills offense against the Jets, it would be good. But if I can use two words... I would use good and diverse. How did it look different? Number one, Josh Allen through play action passes on 57% of his attempts. We talked a lot about play action leading up to the Jets game, specifically from under center, which is what you saw a lot of. A lot of under center, a lot of play action, a lot of Allen on half rolls and on the move. A lot of diversity in personnel usage. Little Matt Breida. Little Isaiah McKenzie. a Little Gabriel Davis. Felt like Lou Bega, Mambo Number 5. A little bit of McKenzie. A little bit of Davis. A little bit of Breida. The other thing that I thought was interesting is that Stefan Diggs has not been an under-targeted wide receiver this year. By any means. However... He was never really the engine like he was on Sunday. 13 targets for Stephon Diggs. The rest of the team combined had 15. Whoa. That's a lot. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Stephon Diggs continues to be one of the most successful receivers in the NFL when single covered. It's a little bit like the rock, paper, scissors associated with going against too high as an offense. Sometimes you need to be able to do something, run the ball, short passes, to get them to change. You have to make them accommodate. It's the same way with single covering Stephon Diggs. If you're going to single cover Stephon Diggs, we're going to keep throwing it to him until you accommodate. And once you accommodate, we'll go to the weaknesses that you have now opened up to yourself by accommodating for it. Now that you've decided to double Diggs, Now we have something. But until you decide to double digs, we'll just keep going to them. So there was a mentality shift. Number one, Stephon Diggs and Josh Allen are the engine that drives the offense. It was that way in 2020. It was that way against the Jets. The second thing was when it comes to the remainder of offense, the non-Stephon Diggs section of the offense, it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Mix and matching, personnel groupings. Far more diverse usage of personnel. Now, one of the things that this does is it doesn't really let you go pace quite as much because you're constantly swapping in and out personnel. But that's okay. You have to make a call sometimes between pace and personnel diversity. And I'll take personnel diversity unless we're in a two minute drill and we need the pace. Throw in a little Matt Breida, throw in a little Gabriel Davis. These people don't have to be foundational pieces of the offense, but your weapons go more than just three deep. So given the fact that they go more than three deep, let's use them. So it was simultaneously a more significant breadth of offensive weaponry, but also more concentrated on digs. So if you think of it this way, instead of being scrambled egg, it was over easy. Instead of it being uniform, it was over easy. There's a clear yolk. There's a clearly defined center and nucleus of the egg with the yolk, And the rest of it is thinner, but it's still there. So instead of the egg being scrambled, where it's all pretty much uniform, now instead we have a defined nucleus, a defined center of the offense. And the rest of it's a little bit thinner than it would be otherwise. Not as much yoke in the rest of it. A little break here and there, maybe. Another way the offense looked different is Spencer Brown was in. I can't believe we're at a spot right now with Spencer Brown where this third round rookie is so important, but he's pretty important. And he's pretty important specifically to the run game. Not just because he kicks Daryl Williams inside the right guard, where I think he's actually played okay. Not just because of that. Because also Spencer Brown out in space is terrifying. Spencer Brown is a athletic freak barreling down on some people out in space. If you watch the Matt Breida toss play for a touchdown, Spencer Brown's a scary man. He's got a lot of work to do, specifically when it comes to pass protection. But he makes a difference immediately in the run game. And his... Arrival upgrades two spots. It upgrades right tackle and upgrades right guard. One of the reasons why it was so bad when he went out is because three maneuvers were necessary. Feliciano went from left guard to right guard. Darrell Williams went from right guard to right tackle. And Ike Bucker came in left guard. That's three moves. That's not ideal, three moves to replace one person. But when that one person comes back, multiple spots get upgraded. I'm not surprised that the swing and offensive line went from abysmal to mediocre. Because I don't think the Bills' offensive line is great. I think they're eh. But the fact that it was able to swing from abysmal to mediocre with one person tells you that that one person has a domino effect on the rest of the line. And I imagine when John Feliciano's back, it might even get as far as to say reasonable. We might get from abysmal to reasonable just from people getting healthy, which I think is important. Ed Oliver on the defensive side of the ball. Please remember the last couple of games when the year is over. Make a note to yourself. He's had multiple sacks taken off the board this year from powers beyond his control. Refs, fellow defensive linemen, bad luck. Somebody will say at the end of the year, He's only got three sacks or whatever it is. We are seeing the best year from Ed Oliver. At the same time, we're seeing the best year from Tremaine Edmonds. Both of them were on breakout watch this year. People I was looking towards. Cody Ford fell completely off the face of the planet. I imagine he'll probably be in camp next year for the team because he's still a second round pick. Cheap rookie contract, some positional versatility. I imagine he'll probably be in camp. But Oliver and Edmonds are both having their best years ever. Think about this for a second. What's the main difference in effectiveness between 2021 Bills defense and 2020 Bills defense? I think we thought it was going to be the defensive line. Coming in, we thought the additions to the defensive line, Healthy Star, Gregory Rousseau, Boogie Basham, A.J. Appaness in his second year. We thought that was going to be the big difference in the defense. I don't think it has been. Those players have been fine. Don't get me wrong. star has been fine. Gregory Rousseau's been fine for a rookie, but none of them have been unbelievable players. Where I think the change has come is a healthy Tremaine Edmonds who's taking the next step, Taron Johnson taking a step forward and deciding he wants to be one of the best nickel corners of the game, and Ed Oliver. And this all goes back to the idea that the major improvements that your team can get year over year don't have to come from new additions and personnel or new coordinators. Every year we do this in the offseason. We look at the team and the roster room before and after and go, did we get better? Did we get better? And if we didn't add some sort of splashy name, we go, no. Remember this discussion. Remember this conversation I'm having right now when that comes up next time. Because the new roster additions are not the major impetus for the improvement that the Buffalo Bills defense has seen so far in 2021. It's been improvement from players who are already on the roster. Tremaine Evans, Ed Oliver, Terrence Johnson. I'm not saying the return of Star didn't help. It absolutely did. I'm not saying Gregory Rousseau's not better than Trent Murphy. He is. But the big jumps that got this team back to elite defensive status, which is what I'm going to assume they are right now. I know that the sample size on playing really good offenses is not high. So we'll see how they do against the Colts. They've only really played two teams with really good offenses, the Titans and the Chiefs. They did okay against the Chiefs. They did terrible against the Titans. So I understand that part of this is they haven't played any significant offenses. I get it. But let's assume for a second that they do continue on. If that's the case, the major impetus, the major factor, the most significant slice of plurality pie when it comes to defensive improvement will be improvement and health from players who were already on the team. So let's not forget this. The next time we're going, did the Bills get better? Did they close the gap? If the Bills lose in the Super Bowl this year, and the next question for the entire offseason is, what are they going to do to get over the hump? Remember this conversation here. Plurality pie for Bills Jets. Josh Allen, 31%. Stefan Diggs, 23%. Brian Dable, 18%. Ed Oliver, 11%. Other, 17%. Allen had a really good day. A really good day. Yeah, he threw a pick, but it wasn't garbage time. He had a really good day. Kudos to Brian Dable for adjusting. Stephon Diggs is every bit the $20 million plus receiver he's probably going to be this offseason. Every bit of that guy. He is every bit the alpha number one. And the Buffalo Bills were treating him like one. Steve Mathis, Dave Tilton from the Bills guys posted it on their Twitter handle this week. I really liked it. One more thing. We talk a lot about finding work as an offensive lineman when you're uncovered. And we view that as a really good thing. We don't really talk about it much when it comes to corners. Tredavious White's interception was a result of him finding work. His interception last year against the Seahawks was the same thing. Trey White is never lost in zone coverage, he's never without purpose. I should never say never. You should never do that. He is very rarely without purpose, lackadaisical, lost. He never gets to his landmarks. Sorry, very rarely gets to his landmarks and then says, what do I do? Where do I go? The route that was playing out in front of him on the interception that Tre'Davious White had was designed to hold him down so the route could get behind him. It was specifically built that way. It was a digging back. It took way too long to develop to be a realistic route concept. It's the last, last possible step in the progression. It's designed to hold him there so he sees it cutting back out in front of him and stays over the top of it, thus allowing the route to develop behind him. But Trey White said, nope, absolutely not. I know what this is route recognition and intelligence will continue to be a hallmark of Tredavious White. It's one of the reasons why he will be good and will remain good for probably a long time. It's one of the reasons why Richard Sherman was able to play well into his 30s. Even though cornerbacks are more athletically responsive, they're more athletically dependent than a lot of other positions on the field. When your legs start to go as a corner, that's why they move you to safety. Tredavious White's got the kind of brain and reaction time that could allow him to eventually move to safety. Now, I'd like to see him tackle a little bit better if he's going to be the last line of defense. But finding work as a zone corner is extremely important if you want to succeed in a cover three or quarter system. Because there's going to be times when there isn't a route in front of you. What are you going to do? Are you just going to be a wasted man now? Or are you going to know what's developing around you? Are you going to have situational awareness and route concept awareness to such that you can make a play on a ball? And that's what Trinavius White did. Let's go to the emails. Chris Collins says, Hey Bruce, I was wondering if you could use your worry algorithm to analyze the biggest weakness of each of the top AFC contenders this year. I feel in the playoff success becomes less about good, how good your strengths are and more about how exploitable your weaknesses are. Thanks again for the great content you make every week. Okay, I'll talk through a couple of them. Number one, let's go with the Tennessee Titans. The Tennessee Titans. If I'm a Titans fan, as a reminder, the worry algorithm, right, is a concept that I built to help you make sense of the amount of worry you should have about something, specifically when it relates to sports. Obviously, we're talking about this, but it's relatable in real life. It's the probability of that thing happening multiplied by the outcome of that thing happening. Now, in the Tennessee Titans case, the thing you're worried about happening is Ryan Tannehill fails you when forced to play from behind. Ryan Tannehill in the dropback game without a threat that's Derrick Henry level running the ball is going to fail you. What's the probability of that happening? Somewhat probable. What is the outcome of that happening? Somewhat problematic. Why only somewhat problematic? Because the Tennessee defense is playing out of their mind right now. The Tennessee defense is playing so well right now that Ryan Tannehill really doesn't have to carry a team yet. Which is shocking because the Tennessee Titans defense was absolutely horrendous last year. But they're playing really well the last couple of weeks. And so for Ryan Tannehill... As long as the defense continues to support him, he can just be okay and that'll be all right. But if that defense starts to regress, then all of a sudden it becomes more important. Baltimore. Let's look at Baltimore. The thing to worry about is the running game and specifically the running backs. Baltimore is churning through a really, really good running back squad from 2005. They just released Le'Veon Bell. But their previous leading rusher was Devonta Freeman, who, remind you, was a comp for Devin Singletary when he came out of college, which was a long time ago. So with the Ravens, it's the running backs, and the defense hasn't been playing great in Baltimore. I think we just kind of assume Baltimore's going to have a great defense, and then when they don't, we're always kind of surprised. But let's, let's take each of them individually. The running backs. So the statement is, the running backs are unable to take enough pressure off of Lamar. The probability of it happening? Highly probable. The impact of it happening? Somewhat problematic. If he keeps throwing the ball really well, I don't think it really matters. Let's look at the other one. The defense continues to be underwhelming. That's the statement. Probability of it happening? Highly probable. So far, I haven't seen anything that says the defense is going to suddenly turn into an absolute juggernaut. Highly probable that the Baltimore Ravens defense continues to struggle. What's the impact of it happening? Highly problematic. Lamar Jackson winning a shootout is a thing that happens. Lamar Jackson winning every shootout? That's a little different. So that's the Titans. That's the Ravens. I don't know who else you want to consider an AFC contender, Let's go with the Bills. The statement is, the running game is unable to support Josh Allen enough. That's the statement. Probability? Highly probable. It hasn't really done a great job of supporting Josh Allen consistently for two years. So it's highly probable that it continues. How problematic is it? Somewhat unproblematic. The Bills were one game away from the Super Bowl last year with a defense that wasn't as good as it is this year and a running game that was just as bad. So it's a little problematic, but it's not hugely problematic. So those are some worry algorithms for three of the top AFC contenders. Evan says, okay, Bruce, do you remember the first John Jones and Alexander Gustafson fight? It was really close, and a lot of people thought Gusty actually fought better. Well, that was the wildcard game. Now, do you remember what happened in Jones versus Gustafsson 2? Third round knockout. This game will be close until the third quarter, and then a pick pick six breaks Carson Wentz. That's a hard word to say. Pick six breaks Carson Wentz. Star is back. Beast Mode is back. Bills are back. Titans start to see the wheels fall off. Other inexplicable results around the league happen. We see the 17th game have a weird butterfly effect as it increases parity with players Overstretch. By Thanksgiving, we will see the AFC run through Erie County. I never really respond to Evans' takes at this point because they're supposed to be like that. They're supposed to be crazy. I just go, yeah, sure, let's just do it. Why not? Sean says, Bruce, I think we're in for a tough game this Sunday, and based on the difficulty of the next four, I think this is the one we really need to get. My almighty take number one our defense bends, gives up 24 points, 25 points or more but doesn't break and we're able to come away with at least two key turnovers. Josh and the offense don't have as many drives as normal with the Colts literally running the clock away, but score on almost all of our opportunities. And we put up over 30 take two Dawson knocks his back and puts up 80 yards and a touchdown. Love listening to you every week. Keep up the good work, Sean. Okay. With your first take, I am going to go somewhat improbable. I think the Bills are going to come out with a good plan. I think that their plan against Derrick Henry is probably similar to their plan against Jonathan Taylor. Jonathan Taylor gets involved in the pass game more. But Derrick Henry broke a big one. Jonathan Taylor can break a big one. But I think that Jonathan Taylor is going to be the entire focal point. I think they're just going to make Carson Wentz beat him. And if you make Carson Wentz beat you, I think it's going to run through Pittman. It has to run through Pittman. The key to this game is make Zach Pascal and Carson Wentz beat you. Make them beat you. If Zach Pascal decides to big boy Levi Wallace for 130 yards and that's the way you lose, okay, it's not ideal because you lost, but you made them fight left-handed. So I'm going to say somewhat improbable. Take two Dawson Knox's back, puts up over 80 yards and a touchdown. Darius Leonard isn't as good in coverage as I think he has been recently this year. So I'm going to say somewhat improbable, but not crazy. Darius Leonard is an absolute monster, specifically when it comes to splash game-breaking plays, punching the ball out, taking the ball away, recovering fumbles. But... Darius Leonard in coverage, I think, I think you can get a couple on him. Last email of the day comes from Joe. He says, Bruce, longtime listener, first time writing in. I never miss an episode of the Bruce exclusive. Thank you for making my commute something like Fordo. do. I also respect your adherence to intellectual honesty, as that's something I'm trying to espouse as well. There are a lot of great content creators in Bill's fandom, but you are among the tops, my man. Listening to your pod following the loss to the Jags inspired me to write in, even if it's a bit delayed. I'm in my early 30s, so my formative memories of the Bills, when I actually had a little understanding of what was going on, include things like Kelly's last game, thinking there was no way Todd Collins was the answer after Kelly, and anticipating disappointment. Flutie versus Johnson, firing Wade Phillips still makes me sad to this day, the Music City Miracle, etc., etc. As a combat vet, I believe that the Bills fan base has been subjected to emotional trauma over that period between quote-unquote good teams. And it takes time and effort to work through past trauma to be able to live in the present. But also to live in the present that is rooted in reality. Not a fabrication we tell ourselves that is a construct of that trauma. So in my P brain, I think I arrived at reality after the Titans' loss. We have a really good football team. And we might not win the Super Bowl this year. But importantly, we have a franchise quarterback, a solid culture, a functioning organization, a great front office, and a top-tier coaching staff. So while I thought I was expecting a Super Bowl trophy this year because that follows the story arc and everything under McBean has been on schedule to date. And like the Disney princess fairy tales, my daughter can't get enough of. I take comfort in knowing this team has already arrived. We have a team that will be able to compete every season for the next decade and continue to give us chances at a Super Bowl year in and year out. Like Joe Marino says, they don't just give you the Lombardi trophy, you still have to go out and earn it. But this Bills team is set up to give us many chances at it. So when a 9-7 and Giants team can hoist a Lombardi over a 16-0 Patriots team, anything can happen in a game. But the way this team is set up for sustainable success That gets us to the dance every year where we consistently have chances to win it all. Not eventualities, but chances. Our fan base has to learn to have a good football team again. Or for those of us that don't really remember the early 90s that great for the first time. We need to learn to be like Steelers fans or Packers fans instead of traumatized fans who just yearn for a playoff berth. We have a good team, finally, that it can be in it every year. We might not make the playoffs every year, we might get bounced in the wild card round, but one of these years the ball could bounce our way the right number of times, and we'll get that Super Bowl, just like Big Ben and Aaron Rodgers for years and years and years and years had those shots but didn't even win it in their best years. I'm enjoying watching this team, and even entertained when we lose. Again, thanks for doing all you do for us. Respectfully, Joe. First off, Joe, thank you for the kind words. Um. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I do not deserve the amount of acceptance and grace that I've gotten from Bill's Mafia. I don't. I didn't do anything special. I didn't contribute anything that is worth what I'm getting back. But the fact that I have thousands upon thousands of people who listen to this show, follow me on social media, engage with me in a positive way, they understand what I'm coming from, they even enjoy it, it means a lot to me. I'm glad you brought up Joe Marino because in my opinion, Joe Marino is the GOAT. He's the best content creator the Bills have got. You're very, very fortunate to have him. You're very fortunate to have a lot of the Bills content creators in the media. I've said it before. Please don't take them for granted. I've lived all over the country. I've lived in all sorts of media markets. Do not take them for granted. It really probably goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning where we get mad and we tweet at a media member Hold my team accountable. You are very, very lucky to have them. And I'm lucky to have you. So thank you. In regards to your discussion, I agree with you quite a bit. I've said before that I think the key to football is be as good as you can for as long as you can and hope you get lucky. Because luck is part of it. There's a very reasonable chance we never see a dynasty like the Patriots ever again for the rest of football. It was the perfect marriage of one of the greatest players of all time, and one of the greatest coaches of all time, at the same time. And the odds of that happening again are incredibly small. So for a lot of quarterbacks, Aaron Rodgers has one Super Bowl. A lot of people think he's the one of the best quarterbacks of all time, One Super Bowl. You got to get lucky. Be as good as you can for as long as you can. And I do agree with you. I think the Bills are set up to be as good as they can for as long as they can. It's one of the reasons why having a franchise quarterback is so important is it gives you hope. It gives you this idea that because such a big part of your team is already locked up, ready to go, that any given year you got a shot. If you get the right combination of things around them and the ball bounces your way, you get a little bit lucky, you can win it all. And this is one of those years. The Bills could absolutely win a Super Bowl this year. What's my definition of Super Bowl contender? If the Bills win the Super Bowl this year, is the narrative going to be, wow, no one saw it coming. Oh my gosh. No one, no. That's not going to be the narrative at all. There's plenty of people who picked the Bills as their Super Bowl winner before the year even started. The Bills are a Super Bowl contender. And the Bills are going to stay in that discussion. And that's something to be proud of. And if we don't win the Super Bowl this year, that's okay. You just shrug, throw your hands up in the air and go, Well, that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumbles.